This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Welcome to the National Press Club's Update One podcast. I'm Lincoln Smith, member of the National Press Club Podcast Committee. With this edition of Update One, we are joined by veteran reporter and longtime Press Club member and leader, John Donnelly. Along with highlighting his own career as a journalist, he comments on the status of detained freelance journalist Austin Tice, recent Press Club Obershawn honorees, also provides his recent perspectives on press freedom around the world. Welcome, John Donnelly. Hi, Link. How are you? I'm very good, and thank you for being with us on this Update One podcast. Going right in, you are a veteran defense reporter, now working for Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call. Your reportage has earned multiple awards, appearing in broadcast on CNN, MSNBC, NBC's Meet the Press, and in print with the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Tribune, and National Public Radio's All Things Considered. With defense acquisition malpractice, one of your primary specialties, can you highlight some of the stories for which you're most proud? Yeah, sure. I'm appreciative that you asked that. Yeah, I've done a lot of stories. I think the phrase defense acquisition malpractice captures it pretty well. Um, Not that everything they do in the Defense Department is wrong, uh, and you have to also acknowledge that this is exceedingly complicated stuff that they work on. But there's just a lot of examples, especially when you have the amount of money that they're talking about, where, you know, even, uh, you know, if it's a $200 billion program, even if it's a 5% overrun, it's a big, big issue, right, from a, from a budget point of view. And also sure. these weapons are used, you know, to defend the U.S. national security, and, uh, and, and the men and women in uniform have to be safe you know, in operating them. So, I mean, I've done stories, for example, about, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, submarine program, uh, the Virginia class uh, program and the Seawolf, for example. For a while there, some of these attack subs couldn't fire any of their weapons, and this was not previously known, which if you're a submarine and you can't fire your weapons, that's a little bit of a problem. So I like to think when we publish these stories that it can contribute to solving problems. It can at least light a fire under the solutions for problems in a way that's good for everybody. Another story I did that I'm proud of was the U.S. missile defense system that's supposed to be knocking down uh, ICBMs uh, if they head our way. Years ago, when it was first under development, during their tests, they had a beacon on the target in the tests so that the interceptor would know where the target is at, at all times. And that made the test extremely unrealistic. That had not been previously uh, divulged. But I think the stories that I'm most proud of are those that um, affect the safety of uh, U.S. military personnel. Just to note a couple, I did one about how the Pentagon was buying special protective suits. They're supposed to shield troops from chemical or biological weapons. The the company that was making these suits 
was committing fraud, basically, trying to uh, turn out as many as they could in as short a period of time to make as much money as possible. And so the suits were not up to par, right? And the Pentagon knew that and yet continued to buy them because they wanted to meet the inventory objectives. And then after my story came out, the Pentagon said, well, well, we know where all these suits are and we've secured them so that we can, you know, take care of it. And then I started getting calls from the field saying, no, we've still got a whole bunch of flawed suits here. Another one had to do with the F-35 fighter jet, which for uh, a number of years had a problem with its ejection seat that particularly affected uh, lighter weight pilots. And the glitch in the ejection seat could have contributed to breaking the necks of especially lighter weight pilots during certain you know, ejection scenarios. This was another thing that they downplayed and minimized, but until they got around to solving it, it was a potentially huge problem and still is not 100% solved. So those are the kind of stories that I've worked on. Just to give you a few examples, there's lots of others. Let's get over to press freedom today in 2021. How might you assess the level of press freedom to be in America, Europe, and Asia? And in follow-on, might you estimate the level to be higher than that of 50 years ago, or perhaps not? Yeah, I'm not sure about 50 years ago, but I know that the Reporters Without Borders organization did a report this year that said that press freedom worldwide is at its lowest ebb uh, in about a decade, or almost a decade, since I think 2013. And the bottom line is that nearly half of the countries in the world either have effectively no press freedom or it is so limited and so impeded and so thwarted by the authorities that it's practically non-existent. Nearly half the countries in the world, okay? So that's not good. And we have seen, you know, terrible trends in a number of countries recently. To name a few examples, Hong Kong, the Chinese crackdown there has really, really repressed the media. Eastern Europe, which we had so many high hopes for after the Berlin Wall fell, now you're seeing in countries like Poland and Hungary where autocrats are uh, wiping out uh, free press organizations. Myanmar, the coup there has really resulted in a crackdown. And Afghanistan, you know, we're really worried about what's going on there with so many Native Afghans who helped Western news organizations tell the story, and not all of them have gotten out. Latin America is a serious problem, Nicaragua in particular. There's really an egregious crackdown going on there. So in a number of countries around the world, there are bad things happening. And, you know, I would be remiss not to mention that the situation in the United States is not exactly great. Everywhere in the world, we see really lousy opinions about the press express distrust of the media and you know from the highest levels of government including our own government you had talk of things like fake news and expressions like that and attitudes like that are gleefully seized by tyrants around the world you see it all over the place where reporters in countries all around the world are being thrown in jail because of quote-unquote fake news. So what we say from the White House and other, you know, um, corridors of power here in Washington has a ripple effect around the world. Do you believe 
the American mainstream broadcast and print media of 2021 to be more or less objective than that of 50 years ago? It's a bit of an apples versus oranges situation, right? Because 50 years ago, there were fewer outlets, uh, a lot more trust in, in those fewer outlets. You know, everybody harks ba- harkens back to the Walter Cronkite era, right? Uh, if there's a little bit of nostalgia maybe going on there, um, you know, it wasn't maybe quite as good as we remember it. But it, I think it's much worse now. But I say apples versus oranges because there are so many more in terms of number and different types of news organizations now. So it's just different. But I think it's also worse. I mean, I don't think anybody can draw any different conclusion but that things are worse in terms of uh, the degree to which uh, false information and, you know, hyper-partisan information has been consumed in large quantities by the general public, and it's being disseminated by some of the most watched news organizations, such as Fox News and MSNBC. As a leader at the National Press Club, you've advocated many times for the release of American freelance journalist and veteran Marine Corps officer Austin Tice, who disappeared while reporting in Syria in August of 2012. Over late 2018, Austin Tice's parents announced that their son was still alive. Can you tell us more about the backstory to locate and free him to include the possible role of the U.S. government? And in follow-on, now missing for nine years, do you believe him to be the hands of the Syrian authorities today in 21? My understanding is that he is either in the hands of the Syrian government or the Syrian government at a minimum knows who is holding him. And there have been numerous efforts behind the scenes by U.S. government officials to try to free Austin Tice. I will um, tip my cap to uh, Robert O'Brien, President Trump's national security advisor. He took a personal interest in this case. So there have been efforts uh, underway, but obviously they have not borne fruit, and unfortunately they have not been productive. But we continue to hold out hope. His family is pretty clear that he remains alive. So we are not at all giving up our efforts to uh, to free Austin Tice. It's just outrageous. I mean, you know, we have so many cases of reporters being jailed, but, you know, there's not a whole lot of them that have been in jail for, like, nearly a decade and held, uh, you know, without any kind of, you know, not even the pretense of any kind of legal proceeding. So, yeah, we're big time worried about that, and we do not intend to let up on it. On 30 August of this year, the National Press Club announced honorees of the 2021 John Obishan Press Freedom Award, Chinese citizen and Bloomberg editor Hayes Fan, and Frontier Myanmar editor Danny Fenster. National Press Club President Lisa Matthews said, quote, We admire the resilience of these two honorees, both of whom have been unjustly detained, end quote. Can you further comment on the resilience of these two journalists to which Lisa Matthews refers? The John Obershawn Award is an award that we give out annually to a domestic winner and a foreign winner. 
and uh, winner is maybe not, I, I hesitate to even use that term, let's say honoree instead, because normally there's not very happy circumstances surrounding these uh, honorees, and that is the case again this year. We try to choose cases of journalists who are, you know, facing extremely adverse uh, situations purely as a result of their work. And that is the case uh, here with Hayes Fan, uh, as you mentioned, a Chinese citizen who worked for Bloomberg in Beijing. She was first detained in December 2020. Danny Fenster, who is a Detroit native, is our domestic honoree, and uh, he was uh, first uh, taken into custody in May of this year. Both of them are definitely accomplished journalists, and uh, as we like to say, uh, journalism is not a crime, but unfortunately it's treated that way by a whole lot of regimes around the world. And another thing we try to do with this Obershawn Award is, because there are so many reporters who are victims of repression around the world, how do we choose? Well, one of the criteria we have is that in choosing and highlighting a particular case, it brings attention to a larger issue or to a country where the press is really being hit hard. And China and Myanmar are definitely two countries that we are extremely concerned about. To press freedom in the United States, You've stated recently that there have been 137 arrests of journalists. Indeed, you were assaulted at the Federal Communications Commission headquarters at a public hearing in 2017, forced to leave the building after attempting to ask questions of FCC commissioners. Do you sense such assault of reporters, such as that of yourself, is on the rise in America? In my particular case, I was knocked up against a wall, and as and merely because I was trying to ask a question of, a, of an FCC commissioner, the guards might have been under the false impression that I was, you know, uh, you know, tr- some kind of security threat, which is sort of ridiculous. Not sort of; it was ridiculous and untrue. But that was their impression. I think they were just sort of over-caffeinated um, security guards. The reason I'm mentioning a little bit more about my case is to sort of minimize it in comparison to some of the other ones. Uh, Yeah, I got knocked around and I got thrown out of the building. And yes, it happened, you know, in the middle of Washington, D.C. at the Federal Communications Commission. But there are so many reporters, especially in other countries, but including in this country, that have had it a lot worse. We saw, you know, in the George Floyd protests, and again, you know, with the January 6th situation at the Capitol, you have angry crowds, right, and reporters out there trying to cover it, and police trying to get control of the situation. And that is a, a combustible mixture. And reporters, unfortunately, have been unjustly and unjustifiably uh, attacked by cops, very often, in fact, most often by cops, and also by protesters on one side or the other. And so we saw a lot of that in the 2020 timeframe in particular and even into this year. I think there were at least 400 documented cases of reporters being attacked. For example, uh, Linda Torado was a freelance photographer covering protests in Minneapolis. And she was, even though she had clearly identified herself as a reporter uh, with a news uh, you know, camera, she was shot 
in the eye and partially blinded by a policeman's rubber bullet. And we saw instance and instance of, of that, you know, on our own TV screens as we watched the George Floyd protests. Obviously, reporters weren't the only ones getting knocked around, but far, far too many. Several hundred reporters were harmed in those situations. So whenever there's a public protest, that is a particularly dangerous situation. But I think it reveals, unfortunately, a lot of crappy attitudes about the press, especially on the part of the police who should know better. You know, the reporters are there to do a job that is protected by the Constitution and that is serving the public. And uh, not only should they not be attacked, they should be given free reign to do their jobs. We have news organizations said to be of political leanings in America today in 2021. Do you believe these news organizations maintain the public interest at heart? And in follow-on, do these organizations generally embrace the constitutional protected duty of journalists to objectively and factually inform our nation, or maybe not? Yeah, well, I have profound concerns about the uh, greater ideological nature of news. And, you know, the ideological news organizations are not all uh, doing it to the same degree, you know. Some, like MSNBC, you will find a lot of factual information there and a lot of good information and a lot of quality uh, reporters and uh, and editors. But they're still approaching the uh, issues of the day with a bias, okay? But, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you, you have people who are engaged in outright disinformation on the left and the right. And more and more of that stuff is getting consumed by the American public. The algorithms of sites like Facebook favor false and inflammatory reporting. That's the kind of stuff that gets read. That's the kind of stuff that gets shared, that, that fires people up, that confirms the beliefs that they bring to bear. And so we are seeing the terrible fruit of that right now. For example, the January 6th attack on our Capitol by brainwashed people, the failure of Americans to obtain readily available vaccines during a pandemic, this too is a function of brainwashing. And so it's a big, big problem. And it's one that if we don't get a, a grip on it, you know, we will not be able to govern ourselves effectively. In closing, some of your recent writings highlight the post-9-11 wars to include focus on how democratizing Iraq and Iran was never an appropriate mission for the United States military. Can you expand on this theme? First of all, let me say that the U.S. military and the intelligence services got the most important thing right, and that is that they prevented, so far, knock on wood, another uh, major attack on U.S. soil. And we can't forget that. You know, they got that part right. But in the process, they got a lot wrong, and they spent trillions of dollars. There's an estimate that some 800,000 people around the world lost their lives, and so many more were injured and millions displaced by the wars in the Middle East and Southwest Asia. And, you know, our values were corrupted in a lot of ways. So there were so many things that went wrong. But as I thought about it, you know, I thought one of the big things that 
is a problem is what the Greeks called hubris, which has has come to mean, you know, an overweening self-confidence, an excessive uh, faith in your own ability to know what's going on in the world, like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or to be able to accomplish your goals, like establishing an effective central government in Afghanistan. You know, and the best of intentions were behind all this, right? Everybody wanted the best, right? Everybody wanted good things to happen. They wanted safety and security for the American people and for and for others around the world. But, you know, you have to have a realistic sense of what you can accomplish. I mean, especially in the case of WMD, but even the 9-11 attacks themselves, you know, our knowledge was not complete. We did not fully appreciate the degree to which that was a threat, that terrorism was a threat. And similarly, I don't think we, you know, we certainly didn't fully appreciate the extent to which a global pandemic would be uh, a threat. Now, that's not considered a military threat, but in terms of lives lost and, and damage to the economy, it's more than all the wars since World War II combined. So I just feel like going forward, you know, a little bit more humility about what we know and what we can do would help a lot. Mr. John Donnelly, longtime National Press Club leader and reporter, thank you for joining us on this edition of the National Press Club Update One podcast. Pleasure to be with you. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.